And I think the technology was just a little too early when we did pitch it internally, and and we just did not get much interest in uptake. Um, you know, and and to his credit, Brennan Burns, who's my boss, was very encouraging to me. He encouraged me to think about other ways to pursue this level of passion. And I got to talking to a few VC friends. And as soon as I said WebAssembly and next generation of cloud computing, I realized that we were on to something bigger than I had thought and that people were actively looking into that space. You can probably imagine the, the, the awkward after work hours kind of thing where I'm like, hey, team, you know that idea we had about WebAssembly? Let's go start a company. <laughs> I'm Matt Butcher, the CEO and co-founder of Fermion. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Matt Butcher created the fastest path from your blinking cursor to a deployed app in less than two minutes. All this and more on Code Story. Matt Butcher was always intending to be a philosopher in the early days. His dad informed him at some point he would need to get a job, though. After he interviewed at a local utility company, he was thrust into learning the World Wide Web. He continued programming his way through college, getting his PhD in philosophy, but eventually moved solely into tech. He has contributed to multiple open source projects and was one of the original creators of Helm. Outside of tech, he's a coffee snob with more coffee tooling in his kitchen than plates or silverware. Matt and his team started to explore the things they couldn't do with their current tooling at Microsoft and landed on the power of WebAssembly in attempting to speed up the startup time of servers and containers alongside the rising popularity of serverless he and his team stumbled onto something during a post-offsite dinner. This is the creation story of Fermion. Fermion is pioneering the next wave of cloud computing, and, and that's the way we kind of articulate in a nutshell. The entire Fermion team has worked in cloud for quite a while. And at some point, we started to notice that there were, some, there were some things we couldn't figure out clever and good ways to accomplish in cloud computing. And so we started to look for technologies that could help us do this better. And WebAssembly kind of bubbled right up to the top right away as a technology that really enabled a lot of use cases and features for the cloud that we couldn't figure out how to do with containers and virtual machines. So we've begun by building an open source tool called Spin that's designed and targeted for developers to be able to write these new kind of WebAssembly applications for the cloud. And then, you know, late in October last year, we launched Fermion Cloud, which is our hosted platform so that developers can quickly kind of run these applications, share them with their friends and begin building cool applications. This is the kind of time when I wish, you know, every one of the 10 of us who started this could be on here and give their own version of the story. Because it's just, you know, you got 10 of us left Microsoft on the same day to start Fermion. A lot of us came in through an acquisition into Microsoft, a company called Deus, which was very early in the Kubernetes space. We were building Helm and we, we wrote the original version of the Illustrated Children's Guide to Kubernetes. And we attracted Microsoft's attention because we were doing this. Brendan Burns, who was the creator of Kubernetes, had recently hired on at Microsoft and was building the ideal Kubernetes team was what they wanted to build, right? And, and I, I was fortunate enough, we were fortunate enough at Deus to be considered desirable enough that we got acquired by Microsoft. And it honestly, you know, I've been through a number of acquisitions before. The Deus Microsoft acquisition was amazing. 
I mean, it was just fantastic. And my team at Deus became sort of like the open source containers team within Microsoft Azure. And our mandate was build cool stuff based on, you know, container technology, Kubernetes, solve problems that were coming up in the community or through customers or even internally from other Azure teams, and then push as much as possible into the open source world, particularly to like Cloud Native Computing Foundation and, and other similar organizations, so that, you know, in addition to solving problems, we could be good. Microsoft could be a good citizen in the open source world. A bunch of us kind of got working on a wide variety of projects ranging from Helm package manager for Kubernetes through a bunch of more experimental projects like Brigade and Draft and and on into even some things that kind of started to move to the very boundaries of the container ecosystem like CNAB. And it was, it was just fun. But along the way, because we had this kind of unprecedented level of access both to internal Azure teams like the Compute or the HoloLens or the .NET team, and access to customers and this like full on, you know, full send community engagement. We got to hear a lot of input and, and really got sort of like the frontline experience of what people were frustrated with. And sometimes we would hit upon something that a large number of people requested, but that we couldn't figure out how to do in containers or even figure out how to do in, in virtual machines. The startup time for a virtual machine tends to be clocked in at minutes. Startup time for containers tends to be clocked up in, in, you know, seconds. Yet we were seeing the rise of popularity of, of serverless kinds of infrastructure. Well, serverless functions in particular, right? Like Lambda and Azure functions and that whole, you know, Google functions, that whole litany of, of compact code executable artifacts that you can kind of push up and have them execute per request. And developers are telling us, oh, we love functions as a service. I mean, there's some issues with it. We'd like a better developer experience. We'd like, you know, these kinds of features. We'd like to not be locked into a vendor, but we like the developer experience. Meanwhile, the platform operators, and again, you know, this is an excellent thing about being inside of Microsoft. The platform operators at the compute team are telling us, well, here's how it works. You know, we have to pre-spin up this stuff and keep this warmed, warmed virtual machine image around. And it's expensive. And so we started hearing problems like these, right? The, and, and we started collecting these kinds of little nuggets of, I don't know, desire or frustration or whatever, whatever these are nuggets of. And at some point, uh, we decided to sit down and have a conversation about them. And so I, I remember very vividly this conversation because we had all flown into to Vancouver Island to do our team on site. Um, and so we all got together, you know, kind of took over a couple of hotel conference rooms, spent the day planning, very exhausting process. And at the end of the day, we'd unwind by having dinner and we're just kind of sitting around after dinner. You know, the table's largely been cleared. We're finishing up our drinks and, and we're kind of exhausted. And you know how sometimes the bit just flips, right? And you go from sort of like this mode where you've been hyper engaged in this kind of analytic reasoning process of how are we going to schedule this stuff to this kind of free flowing creative mode. And I'm totally not attributing this in any way to the Canadian whiskey we were drinking. We kind of got into this mode where we were going like, what is the next wave of cloud computing? All along, we've been trying to shoehorn all of our problems into the, into the patterns of virtual machines and containers. But maybe there's something else out there, some other undiscovered technology that if we plugged it in in the cloud context, would start solving these problems for us. And, you know, the brainstorming session, you know, we, we tossed out a couple of ideas, but we just decided, well, you know, on our Friday afternoons, when we're doing our research time, maybe we'll look around and see kind of what bubbles up to the surface. And it didn't take long for WebAssembly to be kind of that thing. So, you know, a couple of us spent 
few Fridays here and there, kind of researching it, playing around with it, finding some inspiration. I mean, it really did seem like a good fit. But then along came COVID. And, you know, we were a remote team already. And to some degree, I think that helped us a lot over teams that had to go from in-person to remote. But even so, you know, once we were on lockdowns and things like that, the morale on the team really took a hit. And and, and we decided we were going to just refocus our energy. Let's spend some time refocusing on the mental health of the team and and a little less on the roadmap and just kind of opened up a space. Kind of Kind of ended up putting us in an interesting creative space again. And you never really know what's going to kick you into the creative, what's going to flip the creative bit, right? But, you know, people started to desire to do something that was going to be energizing. So it wasn't just avoiding work that was draining. It was like, can we get engaged in something that's going to be energizing? And so the whole team started playing around on Fridays with WebAssembly and can, what can we build? And then, you know, Research Friday became Research Thursday and Friday. And the team really just dove all in and we built some really cool technology previews. We built this system called Crustlet that could execute WebAssembly inside of Kubernetes. And, you know, at the outcome of this, we're like, okay, well, let's pitch this, right? Surely Microsoft is going to love this. And I think the technology was just a little too early when we did pitch it internally and and we just did not get much interest in uptake um you know and and to his credit brennan burns who's my boss was very encouraging to me and said you know you you may actually be on to something it's just not something that that microsoft is finding a lot of interest in right now he encouraged me to think about other ways to pursue this level of passion and i i got to talking to a few vc friends and as soon as i said WebAssembly and next generation of cloud computing I realized that we were on to something bigger than I had thought and that people were actively looking into that space to see who was doing what. You can probably imagine the the, the awkward after work hours kind of thing where I'm like, hey, team, you know that idea we had about WebAssembly? Let's go start a company. <laughs> and, you know, we took a weekend to think about it, came back on Monday and everybody's like, we are all in. And uh, a couple weeks later, we turned in our notice at Microsoft, all 10 of us on the same day. I really feel bad for the HR person who had to process all of that. Uh, and we started Fermion and then, then a month later, you know, closed our series seed of investment and we were just off and running. So let's dive into the MVP then. So you left Microsoft or you've, you've built this, you pitched it, you're, you're ready to jump out on your own and pursue it. Maybe the MVP is that one you just described, but maybe even a little bit further after you jumped out, that MVP you're going to go commercialize, right? Tell me about that. How long did it take you to build or make it so, right? If you've already kind of had Fermion tools prior to that, and what sort of tools did you use in that to make it come to life? So I kind of think about it as if we had two waves of MVP after Fermion started its started its lifetime, right? After we got started. So on the first day that we launched Fermion, Radu and I kind of laid out to the team a vision for the very first thing we wanted to do. And it was, we want to prove to the world that WebAssembly is useful in a cloud context. And we want to do that by running our own web presence on top of a, a Fermion-built WebAssembly stack. We don't have to release any of this publicly, right? We just have to build it. So we kind of set out to do that. And this was actually turned out to be a really amazing way to galvanize the team because it's a very straightforward mission, right? By February, we want to launch a website. And that means we need web servery kinds of stuff. We need a way to serve files. We need to, and we want to have like killer, amazing, awesome performance. And so we all kind of got going on that. We built 
kind of platform that, you know, if I were to be honest, I would say was, you know, 50% code and 50% marshmallows and toothpicks to kind of hold it all together. It was like, it was like that eighth grade, you know, build a house with marshmallow and toothpicks kind of thing, but it worked. And, and, and on February 7th of 2022, we launched a website. It was built entirely on Fermion WebAssembly's stack. I mean, including the fact that we we wrote our, our own CMS system in Rust that compiles to WebAssembly and it runs inside of a WebAssembly execution context, running, you know, being scheduled but orchestrated by HashiCorp's Nomad Orchestrator. And we were we were really proud of this whole kind of stack that we had put together in such a short period of time. But then, you know, the second real challenge is, well, okay, it's it's well and good for us to be, you know, exhibiting what we what we think we can do, but we've got to start building tooling that people are going to be able to use themselves, right? And be able to build their own applications. And at this point, we knew what it took us to develop the system. And we knew what easy parts were and what the hard parts were, with the hardest part really being that we needed a deployment model. But other hard parts being WebAssembly stacks are a little bit tricky to install the first time and a little bit tricky to manage. And so we said, all right, Docker did an excellent job of building a tool that got developers excited about building containers. And we know as developers that this is a pain point for us in WebAssembly. Let's build something sort of along the lines of the early Docker command line, but geared toward developers who want to build WebAssembly workloads. So only a few months later, we released the first version of Spin. And Spin is our open source developer tool for WebAssembly. And it makes it easy to scaffold out a new project and and get it compiling and locally run it and test it. And that was that was kind of the first MVP. So we released Spin on March 31st for one and only reason. And that was that we were getting up to where we wanted to release it. And I'm like, we are not releasing this product on April Fool's Day. Whatever it takes to release it before April Fool's Day. I don't want anybody to think that this is like, you know, Google Moon or one of those April Fool's jokes. So we got it out on March 31st, which I think was on a Thursday or Friday or something like that. And, you know, it's the end of a sprint. We were all exhausted. All kind of left for the weekend. Came back on Monday and there were, I don't know, 1,100 GitHub stars or something on our project. And we're like, wait, what? You know, Helm took a year and a half to get to 1,100 stars. What, what's what's going on? And discovered that we had sort of trended on Hacker News and, and a number of people had really kind of found this project really interesting and engaging. And so it was like, it was it was a really rewarding way to get to the end of, of what was really our first MVP and say, okay, well, it's minimal and it's a product, but people are telling us that it's also viable. And that's really exciting because I think you could get to the end of an MVP and discover that it's actually an MP with no V at all in it. <laughs> so that was a really exciting moment. And, and from there, that kind of got the whole team rallied around. Okay, well, now that we've got something that's showing the first signs of success, you know, sky's the limit. What do we do next? <laughs> How did you progress the product from that point and mature it? So everybody's stoked. You're getting the viable part, the good feedback from the market. How did you progress it and mature it? And I think to wrap that in a box a little bit, what I'm curious about is how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address. One thing that, that I feel very fortunate about in the colleagues that have come along from Microsoft and the people who have joined since is this sort of dedication to the idea that if we plan and we plan really well and we plan realistically, then execution is merely walking a path that's, that's preset for you, right? Instead of having to, you know, carve your way through a jungle, you're just following the path that you laid out. Really, at the point at which we had launched the website, we knew in February of 2022, we've got to have a developer tool. As an MVP, we know that this is going to scratch a couple of itches, but that it's going to leave people wanting a lot more features. We need to figure out what those features are. 
And the other thing we knew is it's one thing to show people how to locally develop and run, you know, microservices and web application backends written in WebAssembly with that kind of function as a service field. But, you know, to be blunt, who cares if you can run a facsimile of a cloud service locally? The whole idea of the cloud service is that you have somewhere in the cloud to push that workload and then have it execute in a, in a production grade environment. We need to figure out how to continue moving spin along and continue to add the features that people are asking for and continue to broaden the language support for spin. And the second part was to build a cloud. We, we sat down and went, okay, well, Redmonk publishes his top 20 language rankings every, well, he published the top language rankings every six months, I think it is six-ish months. And the top 20 of those really kind of represent the lion's share of of what programming languages people are using in, in production environment. Uh, let's just say, you know, for every language where there is a plausible WebAssembly story, let's say we want to go out after the top 20 languages in a year. And let's say, you know, we want to be able to add backing data services like key value storage and, and features like domain mapping and things like that onto the spin project. And we want to be able to do things with Redis and, and listen and publish and subscribe on queues. And we set out, you know, a fairly ambitious roadmap that we knew would take us really will take us through the end of this first quarter of this year uh, as we've been kind of rolling out these features a few at a time. And then the second part was the cloud one saying, okay, well, we know we need a production style cloud environment where you can experience this kind of like, you write code in serverless functions model, much like you would with Lambda, but have it built into WebAssembly and then deployed onto this cloud platform. And it's, and the whole experience start to finish is just easy and delightful for developers. Again, this was like the inspiration from Docker for us has always been, they made it so easy to be a developer and to care about infrastructure. Early Heroku, same thing. They made it so easy to be a developer and go, hey, I can do this, you know, self-service deployment thing. And I think in the Kubernetes ecosystem, and I, again, I'm speaking as, you know, someone who's played the platform engineer and the systems developer, we lost sight of that particular user group. You know, we, we really lost sight of what the average developer experience was like in those environments. And so this was a chance to sort of get back to the basics of what makes a really profoundly good end-to-end -end developer experience. So for the entirety of 2022, we said, all right, we're going to identify one key user story. And we absolutely 100% must nail that one key user story. And the key user story was, as a developer, I can go from a blinking cursor to a deployed application in two minutes or less. But that was, I mean, that was it. We were just like ruthlessly focused on that because if we could hit, if we could solve the problem that we were hearing from developers through all of our Microsoft years, you know, stretching back to the early days of Kubernetes, that was a big opening for us. And, and no, we're not, we don't see ourselves as competing with Kubernetes or solving this problem for Kubernetes. We just see ourselves as trying to find where the developers needs are now and then kind of streamline their, their story. And really for us, I think along the way, we learned that the serverless functions world was really where developers want to be, right? Particularly, there's a whole utility class of computing and a whole microservice and, and web application backend pattern that, that works really well with serverless, but it's been gated by the fact that the existing technologies were slow. And they were slow because they were built on virtual machine technology or container technology and consequently had to swallow kind of that slow startup cost. And, and that was one of the areas where WebAssembly really can shine. You know, our goal was to be able to do per request handling of around 100 milliseconds per request. And that would be from cold start to executing the first user instruction, 100 milliseconds. We're at currently under one millisecond for that. And, and we just vastly underestimated how fast WebAssembly is if you pay attention to all the little knobs and dials 
and, and, you know, really tuned for your specific use case. So it has been really exciting to see that. I think we've closed in on telling the, the rudimentary story that we want and having gone from an MVP with spin, early spin all the way through this kind of open beta platform Fermion Cloud that we launched in October. So let's switch to team then. So so you told me that a lot of people came over from Microsoft, right? And I, and I get that that that's how part of that started, but I'm curious about I'm curious about that still and also how you build your team today. What do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? So I said that 10 of us left Microsoft and that we started with 11. So who's the mystery number 11, right? And that was that was Tim Enwall who's a multi-time CEO friend of mine has been a mentor of mine for a long time. Years ago, I worked at one of his companies called Revolve. More recently, he had been involved at Misty Robotics, which is a really cool robotics company. He was the CEO of that. And and after finishing up at Misty, you know, he came on initially consulting with us and just kind of helping us get get our, find our footing and helping us get finances in order. And and the more we worked together, the more Tim and I and Radio and, and Mikkel worked together, the more we realized we just love collaborating. A lot of the kind of early decisions we made about how we were going to hire and how we were going to build the team were informed by Tim's expertise. And one of the things that he said to us uh, very, very early on, probably first week or two was, you know, we used to have very regimented hiring process that included having an organizational psychologist do our values interviews. And I kind of laughed. I mean, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And he said, well, you know, uh, this guy is great. Adam's great. We should bring in Adam and have him do a couple like lunch and learn kinds of sessions with the team on how to handle conflict and how to how to work on, on resolving problems rather than letting them fester. And, you know, and a number of kind of early organizational kinds of things. And I'm going, oh, yeah, OK, I mean, for paying for an hour of, of, you know, external consultant time, that seems reasonable. From the end of the first session with, with Adam, I understood why Tim was enthusiastic. Adam presented material that was designed specifically to help us avoid a lot of the pitfalls that early startups do. You hit the storming period and personalities come into conflict and, you know, research says that a number of startups, you know, fail right there. We didn't want to be that startup, right? And so these kind of early sessions with Adam were really oriented around, you know, yeah, I know you've all you've all worked together as a team before, but let's talk really bluntly and honestly about what are what are the ways that you can take feedback. You know, when somebody needs to tell you you did something wrong, what, what kinds of language do you use? And all of these things that, you know, in hindsight, as I'm saying them now, are like, well, yeah, of course, giving somebody permission to give you blunt feedback it seems like an obvious thing to do. But at the time, I realized I had never, never really done that before. And a lot of times we were kind of glossing over when things were irritating us. So it gave us a way to really sort of rethink how we could be a high functioning team by being a, a team that is excellent at communication internally, excellent at talking to each other and, and then excellent at resolving conflict. Uh, when two people have a really good idea, they each have a really good idea. You really want to do the diligence to figure out which one is going to be the idea you go with. You don't want that conflict to turn into thrown toasters and, you know, slammed computers and things like that. And so that, that ended up being really good. We ended up early on, we identified what we felt like our, were our core values, curiosity, humility, inclusivity, and passion. Chip, we called them our chip values. And, and we realized that we didn't know how to interview for those things. How do you interview somebody for curiosity? So again, we contracted Adam and said, you know, how do we interview for this? And then we said, well, wait a minute. You know, the great thing about working with an organizational psychologist and someone who's really gifted and skilled in this is they learn to read people. 
So he ended up starting our interview process. At this point, he works 30 hours a week for me on doing everything from continuing on this kind of training to helping us refine our interviewing process and understand the psychological impact of, say, economic downturns, you know, and, and people, peers and friends getting laid off from other companies. Man, it's great to have someone there to say, hey, let's navigate this together and let's treat this as something that we can, that we should talk about and we should be honest with each other about and be maybe a little bit more vulnerable, but also in a proper work context. So Adam, I think, has been sort of our, our secret weapon as far as how we've done the, the hiring process here at Fermion spent a lot of time saying, okay, how do we do the right kind of technical interviews? How do we project out what kinds of, of hires we need to do? And how do we make those hires in a timely manner? But all of those, I think, are really sort of run of the mill. I think the the thing that I learned from Tim and, and I'm happy to have reinforced daily with Adam's contributions is this idea that if you really, truly care about a high functioning startup culture, you, you have to do a lot of legwork to do that communication part. And it really does behoove you to, to, to like stick to values and figure out how to make values a real actual part of culture and one that you can start at the interview and identify the right people at the interview and then reinforce those values every day in the company. Let's flip to scalability, and this will be interesting giving the context of the, the product you're building. So I'm going to ask it um, like we haven't talked for the past 30 minutes. D- did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow in any capacity? I think people was the one that was the harder for us, right? When you start a company during pandemic where every office around is closed... One question that never comes up is, should we have an office or even should we all live in the same city? And it turns out, I mean, at this point, Fermion, I think we've got people in five different continents that are working for Fermion. Working entirely virtually both has a lot of strengths and, and some surprising weaknesses. We were, we were probably the first DevOps team and, well, I shouldn't say that. I like to think of us as potentially the first DevOps team ever that had 24-7 coverage with a DevOps team of three because we just so happened to be spread out around the globe such that, you know, everybody was, that the time zones were. We very quickly had to get good at asynchronous communication and start to learn how to not accidentally create silos where information was, where information was shared narrowly and not broadly. You know, as we start building a marketing team, is the marketing team able to communicate with engineering in all the areas they want to communicate with engineering and communicate in product to product in all the areas they want to communicate in product with product, but without getting completely overwhelmed by things that do not matter to them, like what is this Rust error or, you know, uh, how do I install this compiler? Uh, and, and so we took a lot of time trying to figure out how to do Slack well. We took started with using SharePoint for all of our kind of team communication stuff and, and realized that was just not not working for us in spite of the fact that 10 of us were from Microsoft and used to it. We switched to Notion. Figuring out the right balance of doing live calls and recording things, but only recording things that people wanted to hear about and then taking meeting notes. And we ended up with a whole bunch of asynchronous processes that if we had come up with all of them at once would have felt overwhelming. But because we kind of learned our way into them, it, it has seemed to kind of settle into a, a pattern that feels normal and productive, but not onerous or burdensome. 
One place I worked in the past that was the most alienating thing I experienced there was I had a bad day and I didn't say anything in Slack and not a single person noticed or reached out or anything. And I, you know, got up to leave my desk at the end of that day. And this was, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something. Got up at the end of that day and went, wow, I, I, I just feel so unsupported. And so I think, you know, as we've gotten going with Fermion, we tried to create environments where people could check in when their work day started and at least have a couple of touch points through the day, whether that's an in-person stand up with the team that's time zone relevant to them or just a couple of interactions on Slack when they can't get on a video call for some reason. That kind of way of building culture is both you know, good for where we are now, but also seems to be scaling up as we as we hire more people and hire people in different functions and in geographically sort of disparate locations. Uh, compared to that, scaling technology-wise has been really easy because we're all a bunch of cloud engineers who are like, well, this is our bread and butter. We know how to scale. And, you know, WebAssembly as a core technology is a very, very scalable, highly scalable technology. And, and, and you know, for example, on an extra large virtual machine in AWS, if you were running containers, you can run maybe 30 to 40 containerized applications on that extra large VM. Open beta release, we were running 900 applications per extra large, and then we have gone up from there since then. And we're not actually sure what the upper bound is, but we think it's somewhere around 10,000. And so, so scalability on the tech side has been a much easier story for us. Okay, so as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I am, and I do not want to understate the fact that I am really, really legitimately enthusiastic about the technology that we built. I think it is a really first-class technology that really will, over the, the next few years, shake up the way we think about cloud and ultimately, you know, cut costs and improve performance and, and make more developers and more platform engineers happier people. I don't want to underplay all of that, but what, what I think I am most proud of is to work together on a team of passionate people who really and legitimately are, are not just super smart engineers and amazing marketing people, but people who are good to each other and who care deeply about the emotional well-being of their peers, about whether or not we can build a fun workplace, whether we can, you know, insert levity to the day-to-day -day tasks and, and, and reduce frustration. That to me is the one thing. And, you know, say, what are you most proud of? And honestly, I have to say, I can't say proud of that because pride sort of suggests that somehow I had a, a strong causal role in that. And, you know, again, we started with 10 people on day one. And these are people that had already worked their way in and out of my life in a number of ways. And already I had learned a ton from them about how to be a good person and how to be a cooperative person. So pride probably isn't the right word there. If I were to survey over the balcony, it would be the thing that, you know, brings me joy or gives me the most satisfaction or just lights me up. You know, my, my kids like to point to the uh, sparkle heart emoji. The thing that makes my heart sparkle, right, is the fact that I, I have just... It is a phenomenal group of people to work with and to see them passionate, not just about doing the day job and not just about taking care of each other as they are today, but about welcoming new people as they come in and seeing how big we can scale this particular philosophy of team building and team collaboration. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. You know, we had our fair share of early hiccups as far as technology, right? I think we all we all kind of have our technology missteps. I think those those are kind of uninteresting if we talk about them. But I think, you know, when it when it comes to team building, 
Where we are now, I'm really excited about. I'm really proud of. I think early on, my personal biggest mistake was to be a little bit hard-headed about things. I think, you know, I've been the team leader for a long time, right? So in a in a sense, I thought the transition from team leader to CEO was going to be pretty easy. And instead, it has been hard. And it's been hard for me to learn when I need to step back and say, I should not be the one making these decisions. But also, I recognize that at the end of the day, I'm the one who has to, you know, cut the Gordian knot. I'm the, I'm the one who has to say, all right, based on everybody's input, this is how we're going we're gonna to go. And usually it arrives by consensus. And very rarely is it the case that I have to kind of step in and say, okay, you know, I know we've all expressed these things, but I'm just going to decide. But it took a little while for me to embrace the fact that I that I was so far out of my expertise in so many different areas like finances and things like that that I really really needed to rely on a group of people beyond just our the immediate team and and Tim Enwall again you know multi-time CEO who came in on day one as a consultant in a sense joined as the COO you know early on he would say to me you need to reach out to these people you need to get connected with other CEOs because this job is isolating you need to you know talk to people who have done finance before you need to talk to people who have run successful companies you need to talk to people who have run failed companies and i think that if i had really taken him at his word right at the beginning and really reached out and tried to uh, form stronger bonds and also been you know a little more open even to hearing what other people on the team had to say about you should connect with my friend so and so then those first three to four months would have been much, much smoother for us. I think I, you know, just learned the hard way. As the the personal and the and the well-being of the company are so tied up when you're sitting in this particular chair, that I look back on that and I think, man, I might have slowed the company down by weeks or months, you know, in those early my reluctance to, you know, bring Adam Reynolds in earlier or in my defensiveness when other people said to me, maybe you should look at product market fit a different way than the way you looked at Helm. But in the end, I think as I've learned that, and as I've learned the value of of finding and building alliances with a lot of other people, and, and I've learned to listen better to the advice of people like Tim or the board of directors or, you know, friends at other startups, it's helped, right? And I, I think I'm getting much better at it now than I was before. You know, I mentioned that one of our core values was humility. And all of our core values we put in place, not just because they were things that we felt like we had and we wanted other new people to have too. They were things that we felt were aspirational to us. I mean, I mean I'm always going to end up talking a little bit about philosophy, but because that really is my background. But, you know, Aristotle used to say, you know, ethics is living up to the virtues, right? Is finding it so that you build the virtues until they, you build your own character until it becomes automatic for you to act virtuously. That's the way Aristotle used to talk about, it, right? Humility was an aspirational goal for us and an aspirational goal for me. How am I open to other people's input? How am I continually learning? How am I not putting you know, my pride ahead of somebody else's input? That's one where I actually made a little bit of progress and I'm excited to continue making progress because it ends up being a much richer experience. I end up feeling uh, like I'm making better choices, informed choices. So that that's one where I think for me personally and in a way that impacted the company, I made some mistakes and have tried to make some adjustments and I'm now kind of at least on my way toward doing it better. <laughs> Let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? You know, Name a person or many persons or something that you look up to and why. I have been very much 
you know, I can't think of another word other than blessed in life, right? I, I mean, I started with the story about how I got into technology, right? I just feel like I've been so fortunate to have been surrounded by people who at the right times and at the right places managed to get me oriented in, a, in an eye-opening way. You know, Bob, the guy who was the, my first boss when I thought I was going to be mowing lawns and ended up, you know, diving into technology, you know, having somebody like him who said, you know, you can learn and you can learn fast and you can, and this is a new emerging place. You can really do well if you apply yourself here. You know, I, I worked at HP Cloud for a while and, and Biri Singh, who is the VP in charge of HP Cloud, was an amazing manager, amazing VP, because he had had that ability to, to get you rallied around a common goal and encouraged while at the same time, very specifically saying, here's where we are today and here's where we need to go. You know, this whole kind of message of here's where, here's where we need to go and you can do it and this is how we're going to do it. And, re, you know, that kind of combination of laying out the analytic and really getting morale boosted is something that I learned from him. And, and you know, often, very frequently look back on and say, you know, am I, am I that kind of person? Can I be that kind of person? Because I know how important Beery was to me when I was first cutting my teeth in, in the early OpenStack more recently, you know, Gabe Monray, who was the CTO of, of Deus and then ended up, you know, as we all moved into Microsoft, ended up leading in substantial product teams inside of Microsoft. You know, his ability to look at a landscape and say, okay, these people, these companies, these organizations might be our competitors, but they are also the people with whom, if we work together and collaborate well, we can raise the floor. Right. And we can make the ecosystem better for everybody. And he was very actively engaged in that during the early container ecosystem. I don't think he got nearly enough credit for the number of times he would say, call Solomon Hikes and say, I know you vented on Twitter and you're kind of alienating people. And maybe let's go, you know, chat with some of the people at CoreOS and see if we can mend a couple of bridges. That kind of proactive engagement in being able to look beyond competition as the overriding factor and look beyond that and say, what are the collaborative benefits, right? What good comes from us working together while acknowledging that, yes, we're still going to compete at the end of the day. And there's nothing more, nothing more powerful in an open source ecosystem than, than having that mentality. But with Gabe, I really learned that that you didn't need to confine that to within you know, the, the team or within the people who are on your issue queue in, in, in your GitHub um, repo, but that that was an, a characteristic or a, a mode of doing business, really, that you could take all the way out into the marketplace and, and, and work together with a variety of different companies. I think a lot of the perspective he took in that way is, is really what I'm going to be audacious, I guess, in saying this, but I really think that by his focus and the focus of a couple of other people in that early ecosystem, they set the stage for being able to build something like CNCF that has been a very positive environment going forward, right? I think they really kind of laid the foundations. And, and as we do this thing in the WebAssembly ecosystem, we're once again doing the same kind of thing where there are a lot of companies in the field and they range from big companies like Microsoft to small companies like Suborbital and, and Cosmonic and we're, you know, somewhere in the middle. There's an opportunity, as I learned from Gabe, to kind of build the ecosystem now. So I think those are three people that really I find a lot of inspiration from when it comes to learning how to interact with other human beings in the technology sphere. Okay, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? 
this is going to follow very naturally from the last question because the advice I would really give is the advice I would just pass on from, you know, the Bob's Beerys and Gabe's of the world and say, you know, don't go it alone. It's not even a matter of you don't have to go it alone. It's don't go it alone. You only you only harm yourself and your potential, you know, great idea and your potential future community and audience when you insist on going it alone. You know, bring people in, bring in good colleagues that you work well with, bring in great first community members who are passionate, who get that same passion for your your good idea that you have. Bring in good advisors who have walked the path before, bring in mentors, you know, don't go it alone. Fantastic advice. I love it. Well, Matt, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Fermion. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.